My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Hi, this is John Hemminghouse speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Milanville, Pennsylvania. For over a year now on this program, our pastor has been examining the biblical record of the messages that Jesus Christ himself preached during his ministry on earth. In this week's study, Pastor Jones begins to look at Jesus Christ's largest message concerning end-time events. This sermon was commonly called the Mount Olivet Discourse because Jesus spoke these words while sitting on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem. A short time earlier, our Lord had given a passionate denouncement of the hypocritical religious leaders who controlled the temple worship in that day. He then closed his remarks to some of the leading priests and rabbis of the nation by saying that they would not see him again until they embraced him as their Lord. That message is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 23. While on their way out of the temple, Jesus' disciples wanted to show him some of the beautiful buildings in that complex. In response, Jesus told his followers that despite all the beauty around them, every stone they now saw would be thrown down. This must have been a huge shock to Christ's followers. They were hoping that Jesus would soon be recognized by the nation of Israel as her promised Messiah. It was expected that once Messiah had come, he would lead his people to prominence over all other nations, including the Romans who were viciously oppressing them. The worldwide kingdom of God was to usher in a time of peace, prosperity, and righteousness among all the peoples of the world that would last forever. Yet for some time now, Jesus had been telling his followers that he was to be rejected by the religious leaders, condemned to death, beaten, and crucified. Now he was predicting that the beautiful temple in Jerusalem was going to be leveled. Knowing that Jesus still claimed to be Christ, his latest prophecy brought two major questions to the mind of at least some of his disciples. First, when will these things be? That is, when will the destruction of the temple take place? And how long would it be until the day when the nation would recognize Jesus as their Lord? Second, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Thus, the disciples wanted to know what to look for that would indicate Christ's return was coming soon and the age of his rejection was almost over. Our Lord's answer to his disciples' questions formed the context of the message of Christ that we now call the Mount Olivet Discourse. In this message, like no other that Jesus gave, you will find our Lord's predictions of what the world will be like before his return as king. If you'd like to follow along, you can turn to Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Pastor will just be examining the first eight verses of Christ's sermon in our time this morning. Pastor Jones has entitled this first part of Christ's message concerning the end times, the beginning of sorrows. If you'd like to turn in your Bible with me, please, to Matthew chapter 23. I'm going to back up. Uh, just uh, three verses in front of our text. And I'm going to go ahead and read right down through um, the length of our text, since it's not very lengthy. And uh, so I want you to, we're going to spend, as we begin to touch, we're going in the messages of Christ, and I felt it was appropriate to continue uh, on that uh, theme, at least for this week, uh, because of one of the issues that Jesus is going to be dealing with here, and I think we need to be aware of the um, being careful not to, um, how do I say it, sensationalize what's going on around us. And um, is God in it? Absolutely, he's in what's going on. We talked about that last week. Is that a fulfillment of some prophecy? Um, I don't think it is a direct fulfillment 
of a prophecy in the scripture. And so we'll look at why I say that. If you'll back up with me to Matthew 23 and starting with verse 37. Is there a little bit of an echo? I think, John, there's a little bit of an echo, if you don't mind. All right, Jesus speaking, Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in the in divers places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, um, I want to keep in mind a couple of things, because this is the um, definitive passage. Uh, the Mount, what's called the Mount Olivet Discourse is really the definitive passage from the lips of Christ on, the, uh, on prophecy. Um, it, takes, it consumes Matthew 24 and all of Matthew 25. And then you're into the, the situation of Christ being arrested and his passion. And, and so this is the longest section that we have in the scriptures of Jesus himself laying out a framework of what is to come. And um, when we see that, I want you to keep two things in mind. I've used, by the way, this is a painting. It's, it's, it's about 100 years old of Jesus overlooking Jerusalem. And I thought that would be appropriate um, uh, for our uh, study this morning because he was overlooking Jerusalem when he gave this, uh, when he gave this um, uh, message. Keep in mind these two things. Prophecy reveals some major features of God's plan, uh, but it leaves many of the details hidden for now. And I've used a picture of the Golden Gate Bridge in fog. You can see some superstructure, but there's a lot of things you can't see. On the bridge. And that's the way prophecy is. It's much, much easier to look back. Oh, thank you, Charity. It's much, much easier to look back and to see what God has done and how it was predicted than it is to look forward and to get it right. And so there will be times when we will be trying to connect dots. And I just need to keep in mind that Keep this in mind for me as I'm teaching this and also for anyone else who teaches this. When anybody tries to nail down, well, this is going to happen at this date and this is going to... I just think, you know, really red flags ought to be going up all over the place because God has intentionally made prophecy so that it is not just you sit down and you get every detail correct. It's not meant, meant to be that way. There are times when in the very same sentence... There are two different events that are separated by thousands of years. We know that from, from fulfilled prophecies. So we've got to be very careful whenever we look at this to keep in mind 
that what Jesus is saying, all of it is going to happen. How those connecting dots are going to come together, we may not have all of those dots right. Okay, so keep that in mind. Here's another painting that I find is interesting. This is Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, be around the same time period. No, that's not the Dome of the Rock, by the way. In the in that, that's the sunrise. Um, but uh, and and again, it wouldn't be exactly that scenario. But I thought it was a very good painting of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. That would be at his triumphal entry. So, what were the disciples? Um, what were they thinking when they're asking that question back up there in verse three? Tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? What are they thinking about? Well, let's take a look at what they would be able to see. <clears throat> and if you compare where the Old Testament believer stands, and that's where the disciples are still at. They're, they're before the cross. So the disciples and the Old Testament saints, what did, they, what did they know or have the opportunity to know from their Old Testament scriptures? Well, first of all, they knew that a Christ was coming, and they knew a little bit of details about his birth. And let me just show you some verses along that line. I'm not going to take you to the Isaiah passage, but I will take you to the Micah passage. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth is from of old, from everlasting. So from that verse, by the way, this was a verse that when Herod asked his scribes of his day, where is the Christ to be born? They knew this passage. What that tells us is that the Old Testament believer had access and, and could have had an understanding if he, if he was astute enough in the Scriptures to know that the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem and he was to be the ruler in Israel. So this is clearly talking about Messiah. And if we missed it there, look at the last statement, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. It means he existed before he was physically born. Eternal God. So the, the Old Testament saints could have access to the fact that Christ was to be born and, and was coming as a human. Now, uh, by the way, I think there was some confusion in their hearts and minds as to whether or not he was to be God. I don't think that they really understood that. They were looking more for a physical human uh, military uh, leader who would usher in peace. I don't know that they really completely understood the fact that he would be God. Did they have uh, an idea that the cross was coming? And you notice I have this mountain peak a little behind the first one. Uh, you would uh, Again, you would have some truth on this. Much of it we see after the cross. But let me just take you to one passage that would indicate to, to uh, the Old Testament believer that a Messiah was coming who was going to suffer. Matter of fact, some Jewish rabbis even had two different Messiahs, thinking that there was one um, Messiah uh, who would suffer and maybe one who would reign. Um, but here is Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 and 6. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. This man is clearly suffering. What is he suffering for? Our transgressions, our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. Here's someone suffering in place of other, another person. Now, again, for time's sake, I haven't established, but this passage, if you take it in its context, is about the, the servant of, of Jehovah, the servant of the Lord. And there's two options that that can refer to, either the nation of Israel or the Christ who was to come to save the nation of Israel. Those would be your two options as to who the servant of the Lord is. In our English Bibles, it's capitalized, uh, servant. In, 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 um, now, I will say this. 
it can't be the nation of Israel. They would, first of all, they can't suffer for other people's sins. They're not worthy of that. None of us are worthy to do that. This has to be the servant of Jehovah who is the Messiah. But notice the next verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's what sin is right there. Turning to my own way, doing my own thing. And the Lord, that's God the Father, has laid on him the servant of the Lord, that would be God the Son, the iniquity of us all, the sins of us all. So they would have some access, some understanding that a Messiah might suffer. They could have had that if they were, again, astute enough in understanding the Scriptures, but that was much, much less understood, and it certainly was not something the disciples were wanting to think would happen to Jesus. A third thing they would have some access to would be the fact of a resurrection. And in Psalm 16 and verse 10, by the way, this is a very interesting painting uh, of, of Thomas sticking his finger in Jesus' side, although I've wondered often if Thomas ever physically did that, if he just was, was uh, overwhelmed by the fact that, that, that uh, Christ was truly there and was God. But in Psalm 16 and verse 10, David wrote this, You will not leave my soul in Sheol or the realm of the dead, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, I would, I would say that you will not leave my soul in hell is how it is in, in like the, the King James. And, um, and, but that's not a good rendition. Jesus did not go to hell after the cross. He told the, the, the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, uh, where was paradise? I think it was in this realm of the dead, the Sheol. Because he had not ascended to his father if you recall, three days later, when, when Mary Magdalene comes to him and he says, don't cling to me, I've not yet ascended to my Father. Very interesting. So uh, Jesus is, is clearly going to, the, the Messiah was said to rise from the dead without his body seeing corruption before his body would rot in the grave. He would re- rise from the dead. So there would be some access, again, in the Old Testament, whether or not they understood it, to... These events, the birth of Christ, the cross, the resurrection, again, not easy. These peaks are behind the major peak that the Christ is coming. Now, um, the church age was completely unseen. That's like in a valley down behind everything, as would be the rapture of the church. That would not be understood. They would see a larger peak off in the distance, actually even larger in their minds than the Messiah's birth, would be... um, not so much the tribulation, but what would come after that. And that is the kingdom. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Did they have an understanding that they would go through a time of suffering before Messiah's kingdom? Oh, they did. They had at least somewhat of an understanding of that. Let me take you to one. There's a couple of passages I've listed there. Jeremiah 30, verses 4 to 9. Amos chapter, 18, uh, chapter 5, verses 16 to 20. I'm just going to go to the one verse out of the Jeremiah passage. And here's what it says. Alas, for that day is great, so that there is none like it. This is one of the things, uh, for those who are being pulled toward a um, um, mid-tribulation rapture, or a pre-wrath rapture, I I think this uh, passage, as well as Matthew 24, 21, which we'll not get to this week, both of them argue strongly against that position. And the reason why is because he says there is none like it. There's nothing like this particular time of suffering and where Matthew 24, 21 is located that Jesus makes a very similar statement. It's before where people put the mid-trib rapture. 
And, G, and what Jesus is saying is there's nothing before it like it, there's nothing after it like it. I mean, he's very, very clear on this. But in this particular spot, you'll see this is Old Testament. There's none like this day. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is a name for Israel, the nation of Israel. There's going to be a time that's not, it's unprecedented. That will be time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. And if you think about it, the Jewish people have gone through many horrific, horrific times of suffering. We, on our most recent memory, the Holocaust, where there was a concerted effort made by the German nation under Hitler to exterminate the Jewish people. And thank, thank the Lord that did not take place. But that idea that suffering would precede the kingdom, they, they had some knowledge of that. Uh, there's also the fact of what we now call the second advent or the second coming of Christ. They may have not. They may have um, actually got those two peaks confused. They certainly knew that Messiah was coming and to be born, and this idea that he would come to reign. Whether or not it was two different comings, I don't think they understood that, but they did understand that Messiah would one day come and rule, be the ruler of the nation of Israel. And in a very real sense then, set the tone for the entire world. That the entire world would be brought under his authority. And let me just show you um, out of Psalm 2. It's a great passage dealing with that. It talks about the kings of the earth, plural, set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The word anointed there is the word for Messiah or Christ. And they want to cast away um, his, his cords. They want they no restrictions from God. We don't want God. A very similar attitude to what, obviously, unsaved people have had through every generation and even today. But this is kind of a concluding of that section, verses 1 to 6. Let me show you the last two verses. Then shall he, the Lord, God the Father, speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet, and this is God saying, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. doesn't matter what the world wants. God is saying, I am going to put my king, and that is Christ himself, on the, my holy hill of Zion. He's going to rule and reign over the nation of Israel and over the world at large. And so they did understand that. And that's why the disciples were so excited when they, when they talked to Jesus about him being the Messiah. Was they were looking for this. They're looking for that particular peak, the, the, the kingdom, when he would rule and reign. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 to 9, describes some of that. And again, I'm just going to show you one verse from that passage. Again, the last verse, verse 9. Uh, and you'll, you'll kind of, uh, many of you have seen something similar to this. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. This is speaking of the kingdom under the Messiah, under Jesus Christ. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And he talked about in, that, in his kingdom how, the, how the, the, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. And how a child can play on a poisonous serpent's uh, uh, hole because there's, there's, there's no, they're not going to hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. God is going to make the world a, a place of peace, even in the animal kingdom. And again, the, these prophecies of the kingdom would be so exciting to the disciples that they would be obviously looking forward to them. And, and then they had a little, little understanding of heaven. Um, the fact that there is an eternity, uh, there, was, there were definitely sections of Jewish um, uh, uh, society that did not believe in eternal life. Um, the Sadducees, we've talked about them in the past, and they were the, many times the priestly class. Many of them would be, 
would be in the upper echelons of Jewish society. They really did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in a resurrection. But the, but the vast majority, the majority of the people did. And here's just one verse out of Isaiah chapter 65 uh, and verse um, 17. Behold, God says, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. It's going to be so wonderful on the new heaven, the new earth. It's, it's, it's something we're not even going to worry about where we were. It's, it's, it, it'll be so wonderful. So the question is, as the disciples are standing or sitting next to Jesus on the Mount of Olives, and they come to him in verse 3, and they say, okay, one of these things going to be, what are they asking about? What is their perspective? Well, here's what they would say. I'll just give you kind of a line. And the idea is that, yes, they would, they, would, um, they would have known that Christ should be born, and, of course, they believe, and they are right on this, that they're, they're sitting next to him. They don't understand the cross very well at all. He's been talking about it. They don't want to believe it. Uh, but it is in the Old Testament. They would have had at least some kind of background. He's been explaining that to them. Resurrection, um, he did tell them he was going to rise from the dead. Tribulation, they, Jesus has just mentioned, when he said to them in verse one, uh, verse 2 of Matthew 24, you see all, these, all this around you? Because they'd been showing him, really, you know, excited. look at the beauty of our temple. And he said, there's not one stone that you're seeing that's, going to be, that's not going to be cast down. That then would indicate to them that time of Jacob's trouble. We, they understand trouble's coming, obviously. Um, so what are they asking about? Go back again to Matthew 24, 3 with me, and let's, let's think about what the disciples would be asking Jesus about. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? What things? Well, what did he just got done telling them? Everything you see is going to be thrown down. That would be so disturbing to me. Especially as a patriotic Jewish man, you're looking forward to this kingdom. And now you've... you've um, so let's go and let's think about this for a few moments here. Well, they're, they're at, they know he's Messiah. <clears throat> they came out in Matthew 16. Jesus said, who do you think that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus basically says, you're right, Peter. Flesh and blood didn't show this to you. I showed this to you. Uh, my spirit, excuse me, God, the Spirit showed it to you. So, so they knew that. They, they also are looking for a literal kingdom. They're not looking for a, um, uh, some kind of a mythical, heavenly kingdom. Matter of fact, let me just take you to that one passage, Acts chapter 1. If you'll flip with me, please. Acts chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. It's, it's a, just a few books beyond Matthew. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. <clears throat> Acts chapter 1, verse 6. By the way, let me back up and just show you verse 3 real quick. I know I'm going to mess up John in the booth there. This is speaking about Jesus after his resurrection, to whom he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. So he showed to his disciples without any doubt, <clears throat> infallible proofs, that he had in fact risen physically from the dead, personally from the dead being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to what? The kingdom of God. Now Jesus, the master teacher, was teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. And I want you to uh, look at verse 6. 
Because the disciples, they therefore were come together. They asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, if he's been teaching about the kingdom of God and there is no literal kingdom coming, then they missed the very foundation of the whole thing. And I will tell you that as the master teacher, Jesus didn't have them miss that. And you'll notice he does not say, by the way, Oh, fellas, you're wrong. You're looking for a literal kingdom. You, You got it all wrong. He didn't say that at all. A literal kingdom is coming. They're expecting that. But what did Jesus say to them? Verse 7. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know. Very interesting. These guys, some of them are going to write scripture. We get prophecy from them. John will write the book of Revelation. He's there. Peter's there. He'll write some prophecy. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Times is how long. He's saying, it's not for you to know how long. The word is chronos. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. So you're not to know how long it's going to be until the kingdom comes. And the word seasons is karyos. The idea is, is what it's going to be like before my kingdom comes. So whenever we think, well, the oh boy, things are happening on this world that are indicating, really, Jesus said it's not for you to know that. You don't know what it's going to be like. You don't know how long it's going to be until my kingdom comes. We're just told to be ready. Now back in Matthew chapter 24 then, Let's think about what else they're thinking about. You can head back there if you would, please. Well, as Messiah, Jesus is going to reign over God's kingdom. And they're not wrong on that. That is supposed to happen. Now, again, and I don't blame them. If I was in their sandals, I'd be thinking the same thing. And that is, well, if Jesus is going to reign and I'm one of his disciples, I'm going to reign with him. And in a very real sense, they would and they will. But I think that's obviously a big concern. Jesus was rejected by the spiritual leadership. This has just happened. Matthew 23, where Jesus absolutely um, uh, just verbally takes apart his enemies on their hypocrisy. They have not repented. He, um, he, he absolutely, they have absolutely, without, without any reason, they've, they've, they've just dug their heels in, and they are not going to accept him as their Messiah. They're not going to do it. It's obvious. What else is going on is that Jesus has just stated they would not see him again until they were ready to embrace him as Messiah. That's verse 39. You will not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118.26. And it's a reference to receiving the Christ. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. He said, you're not going to see me again. When I leave this time, you're not going to see me again until then. Of course, after his crucifixion, they did not see him even risen from the dead, his enemies. And they will not until they're willing to welcome him. The nation of Israel will see him one day when they're willing to welcome him. They're going to go through that time of trouble first. Last thing I'd like to point out is that Jesus has just predicted the utter destruction of Jerusalem. He's just said, you're not going to, all these stones you see, there's not one that's going to stand on, on, on another. And so these disciples, who have been looking forward to reigning with Christ on earth, I mean, this thing was, 
was, and I don't blame them, a patriotic and, and, and in some ways self-centered as well, looking forward to being reigning with Jesus and bringing in peace on earth. And so if that, all of those scenarios, if you've come through all of that understanding, what would you be wanting to know from Jesus? Well, verse 3 expresses it, and that's it. Hey, when is this going to happen? When shall these things be? When is the destruction going to happen? When are they going to receive you again? And notice, what shall be the sign of thy coming? When are you coming back to when they're going to receive you and at the end of the world? Well, it says the end of the world. Don't think the end of the world as far as the end of all time. They're not thinking that at all. They're thinking, the word actually is aeon, which means age. When is this end of the age, the age of rejection of me, of you, Christ? When, when, when are they going to receive you? So when are these things going to happen? The destruction of Jerusalem and your return, and they'll be willing to welcome you. And of course, if I'm, if I'm in their shoes, I'm saying this. I sure hope it happens in my lifetime. I want to know. And I don't want to miss it. So what's the sign when you're coming back? How am I going to know when you're returning? And so then for the next several verses, and we will not get into all of these by any stretch. We're going to only go through verse 8. Jesus begins to give instructions. Not about the rapture. And this is why when you hear people say, oh, there's earthquakes and there's famines, and they try to point all these things out, and there's pestilence, and now we got the coronavirus, and it's a fulfillment. No, it's not. They're not even asking that question. They don't even see the rapture. They don't even understand a church. What they are asking about is, Jesus, when are you returning as king? And that's what Jesus is talking about. When I'm coming back as king. And so let's go back and look at verse 4 and begin to look at Jesus' answers. Just verse 4 and 5 to start with. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now, what you want to look for in these verses are when Jesus gives a specific directive. This is what you need to do. And the first one is, make sure that you're not deceived. There are going to be other people that are going to come along and claim to be Christ. Now you say, well, that's going on now. And yes, in a certain sense it is. But it's going to be all the, the greater during a time after um, when, when we're looking for the kingdom itself. We're not looking for the kingdom. You and I are looking for the rapture. We're looking for Christ to come. And, and you remember when Jesus said to his disciples, it's not for you to know how long it's going to be or what it's going to be like. That's what we're looking for, that return. The return that has no signs accompanying with it. So that means this, Christ could come at any day, at any moment. We have to be ready for his coming. No matter what's going on, whether it's a time of peace, a time of war, no matter whether there's pestilence or not, we need to be ready. That's the instruction to us. It's not for you to know. The times, how long it's going to be, or the seasons, what it's going to be like. Before my return. Don't be deceived. The second thing he'll tell them is do not be troubled or alarmed. Don't be um, just like uh, jump scared because of something that happened to you. Notice the different things that he tells them not to be alarmed about. Verse 6. You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. Don't be alarmed at that. 
For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines, and pestilences, and earthquakes in divers places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. You'll notice he mentions a number of things that will happen. You say, well, they're happening now. That's true. They're going to happen in a far greater extent after Christians are gone. And what he's talking about is really after we're already gone. Remember, the disciples don't even see the rapture. He's talking about wars. He's talking about rumors of wars. He's talking about famines. And if you mention, and you'll notice he mentions pestilences. Now, you'd say, well, Pastor Lane, um, is this current uh, plague prophesied in the Scriptures? And let me just say this. No, I don't believe it is. I know it doesn't sound as sensational, but I don't believe it is. Matter of fact, um, again, it doesn't mean that we don't take precautions. It doesn't mean that we are on quarantine. We're doing things. We're trying to follow our leader's instructions, and I pray that it will result in everybody, um, you know, a, 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 a sooner rather than later end of this situation, if, it, if the Lord wills. But can I just say, it doesn't even come close to the plagues that we've had in our in world history. Let me just give you the top five, as of current day, plagues in world history. Uh, the first one, number five, would be what's called the Antonine Plague. It uh, lasted about 15 years. You'll notice the date, 165 to 180 A.D., Five million deaths um, as a result of that plague. Uh, it seems that the Roman soldiers were in the Near East and they brought back this plague to Rome. And uh, many people were dying as a result of it. Um, terrible, wreaked terrible havoc. Um, number four on the list is the plague of Justinian. So it's been called around 541 AD. Um, this is uh, possibly the bubonic plague is what um, historians at least wonder about. 25 million deaths from that plague. Um, and I don't think it went as many years by any stretch as the, as the one below it did. Number three on the list, and it's still ongoing, is the uh, AIDS um, epidemic that has claimed over 25 million deaths. And obviously, um, you know, thank the Lord, is, is we don't hear as much about it. I don't think it's quite as widespread as it once was, but a number of people, especially in Africa, um, died from the AIDS um, epidemic. Um, number two on the list is the Spanish flu. It happened just about 100 years ago. Um, it came in um, and was spread because of the troop movements in World War I. And the tragedy about the Spanish flu was that it often took the young and the healthy um, it actually would, would uh, the virus would take uh, your good immune system and use it against yourself. And so many of the people that died in the Spanish flu were young and healthy. And if you'll notice the note I have up there, about half of the deaths, 25 million deaths, took place within the first 25 weeks that they knew the plague was around. Can you imagine that? 25 million, de a million deaths a week? Unbelievable. Um, the Spanish flu. Number one on the all-time list, the Black Death. Killed between 75, others have estimated up to 200 million people when you had only 450 million people estimated on the earth. Um, they say anywhere from one-third, some would say even one-half of Europe's population eliminated in Europe. Can you imagine going to one house out of every three? 
Nobody there. This unbelievable, that Europe didn't recover from this plague for, for decades. Forget how many, maybe, maybe even centuries. Um, horrific casualties. These were not, now think about it, the Black Death is going on hundreds of years ago. These were not signs that Jesus was coming back anytime soon. And so we, we have to understand, we're not looking for what the disciples were looking for. They were looking for signs of Jesus coming as king. And that's what Jesus is discussing with them. They're not looking for a rapture. So we have to be very careful that we don't sensationalize this and make the scriptures jump out of their context and say something they're not saying. Now, we are living in a time where we need to be watching for the Lord's return in the rapture for his church, but we're not looking for his coming as king yet. That is not an imminent event. The rapture is. Now, what you're really looking at in Jesus' words, when he talks about wars and rumors of wars, where he talks about plagues, where he talks about false Christs, where he talks about famine, where he talks about pestilence, you know what you're really looking at? You're really looking at what we call in the book of Revelation the four horsemen. And I want you to go with me to Revelation chapter 6 and look with me at verses 1 to 8. This is really what Jesus is describing. And as I would, again, I'm trying to connect some dots here, but let me just, again, say to you that you need to keep in mind that when we're trying to connect dots, we, are, we can be wrong. We're, what, what Christ has said, what the Word of God says is going to happen, is going to happen. Is this related? I think it is. I believe what Jesus was talking about in, in, in Matthew 24 were the first signs during what we would call the time of Jacob's trouble or the tribulation period leading up to his return. Remember the mountain peaks. Disciples, they could see trouble was coming, and Jesus had even mentioned it, but they're looking then to a higher, to a higher on that mountain, the peak of his return. That's what they're hoping for. And that's what Jesus is talking about, this time of trouble before his return what we commonly call the tribulation. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. And when uh, I saw the Lamb opened one of the seals, there's a scroll, and it had seven different seals on it. And it's a scroll telling about how God is taking back the world. And as a seal would be broken, you'd be able to roll the scroll out a little bit, and you'd see something. Notice what the first one is. I, when, he, when, I, when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and the Lamb is Christ there, I heard, as it were, the, the noise of thunder, and one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And you'll notice on this picture that I have up for you, the guy on the white horse, and he's got a bow in his hand. Now, it's kind of interesting. He's pulling back an arrow, or let's see if he's got an arrow on it. Yeah, they have an arrow on it. I will tell you that, that one interesting observation that some of men have made is that there is no arrow mentioned. Uh, and again, you've you got to be careful how you walk with this, but the idea is this man seems to come in peace. He is the spirit of Antichrist. I've heard some people, and, and, and good and godly people, say, well, I think this is Christ himself on the horse, on the white horse. I don't think so. Every other of these, these uh, people are demonic, um, and I think Christ is not riding with them. It would put him on the wrong level. This would be the spirit of Antichrist. Jesus' first warning, make sure no one deceives you. 
There will be many coming in, in my name saying, I am the Christ. The spirit of Antichrist that gives reign eventually to the Antichrist himself. Let's notice the second seal being opened, verse 3. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given unto him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. And so Jesus said, secondly, to his disciples, uh, don't be alarmed at this. There will be wars and rumors of wars. And so we see the red horse. Wars and rumors of wars. You notice that verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and, a measure, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see that thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Now, a penny is a day's wage. And the idea is that uh, this is famine. This is, this is spending your entire day's wage, basically, to feed yourself or feed your family. Hear not the oil and the wine seems to indicate that there will be rich people who will be unaffected by the famine, but by and large, there's going to be a worldwide famine. And so you see, in this particular picture, the black horse and the man with the balance is in his hand. And Jesus said, don't be troubled at this. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars, and there's going to be famines. Now the next uh, seal that's opened, verse 7, when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of, one of, the four, on, uh, of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was Death. And hell, or Hades, or the grave, followed with him. And power was given over them, over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with the sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. And so you'll notice, as the result of these, and, and, and by the way, when it says kill with death, there is a textual difference there. Um, a matter of fact, uh, many of your modern translations will use the word pestilence there, and that's, I believe, a good rendering. That pestilence is part of, it's not killing people with death, killing people with pestilence. And so what you have is you have Jesus saying there will be pestilences. And he even mentions earthquakes on top of that. So what do we see? We see Jesus saying, don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. You're gonna, there's going to be wars. That's seal, uh, seal uh, uh, two. Don't be deceived. That's, that's the, the seal first one of the Antichrist. Don't be troubled by wars and rumors of wars. That's seal number two. The spirit of violence is going to go across the world. Famines, that's seal number three. Pestilences, seal number four. And all kinds of death that's taking place. Earthquakes, whatever will happen. And what Jesus said then is, these are the beginning of sorrows. Rather interesting, isn't it? That there's not been, thank the Lord, and, and we'll see where the whole thing ends up. None of us, I think, have a handle on this. But it's interesting to me, that, and I'm, I'm thankful that there there's not been more deaths. And I pray that that will con continue. It would be wonderful if we're able to get a hold of this thing before... There are a number of deaths. And, and you say, well, what about these quarantines? I, or is it politically? I'm not worried about that. Here's what I'm worried about. God is ahead of all this. 
And God is giving us a chance, a chance to, to be um, with our families more, a chance to be in his word more, a chance to be in his, in, in his presence with prayer more. Take advantage of this time. This is, this is a time to, to really reset our focus on things eternal. May, may God take us... We read a passage this morning about, about adultery. Remember, spiritual adultery is letting something else take my focus away from my relationship with the Lord and become the big thing in my life. Folks, this is nothing, nothing compared to what's going to happen when the real tribulation hits. Nothing. And so I ask you this as we wrap this thing up. Do you have all your eggs in this world's basket? Are you living for this life? Is the big thing the fact, man, I, 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 I'm out of work. And I don't blame you. It's a serious issue. It's nothing, but, but, but is that your life? Is it something that can be taken from you? Even our families, as wonderful as they are, they can be taken from us. No one can take your relationship with the Lord from you. And I just pray that you'll treasure that above anything else, above all the other things that you could put in that basket. Oh, don't live for this life. I ask you to go to one passage in closing. It's Matthew chapter 7. It's the, really Jesus' conclusion of this great Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7. I'd like you to look with me at verse 24 to 27. It's not enough, Christian, to know the truth, to be able to even quote the truth. That just makes us responsible. We are responsible to live the truth. We've talked about loving our neighbor as ourselves, haven't we, in our churches for years? How are we doing on that now? Are you willing to, to risk the infection at Walmart to go help your neighbor out, get him some groceries? Are we, are we checking on people? Are we, are we um, praying more than just the physical needs for the eternal needs of people. I'm troubled many times about the shallowness of, of our vision. It's because we're not, we're, we're, there's a disconnect between what we say and what we do. And I want you to notice what Jesus says here. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man that built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon the rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not. Now you'll notice that both of these individuals heard the same thing. They heard Jesus himself teaching. One person does it, one person does not. This second person, he that hears them and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What's the big key do they, that they all often say to real estate? What's the big key to real estate? Location, location, location. That's a beautiful house. Bad location. Put it on a spot. He put it on, on a sandy spot. Now, 
People's lives are like that. Maybe your life is like that. You know the truth. Not that you don't know the truth. And somehow we think that knowing the truth is equated to living the truth, and it's not. Jesus is saying, if you know what's right, you know you shouldn't have your eggs in this basket. You know that this world is passing away. You know that you shouldn't be living for self. You know that you shouldn't be living for work. You know that you shouldn't be living for play. You know that. You know that. But are you doing it? Because it's going to matter It's going to matter more than anything else when you and I stand before the Lord. Not merely what we knew, but what we did. So, Jesus is pointing out in our passage, not a time that we're living in now. A time that's going to be much worse. But it's going to be ushered in by a return that comes like a thief in the night. That could happen today. Are you ready? Have you made peace with God? There's only one way to do it. Therefore, we are justified by faith. We are able to have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is his sacrifice, his death on the cross, that I must place my faith in. Salvation boils down to a personal relationship between me and God through the person of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for me. It is wanting him to be in my life, not just give me what I want. It is wanting him to reign as Lord in my life. Wanting to have him. Do you want him? As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. You need Jesus if you've never received him. That's what you need more than anything, more than a job, more than money. You need Christ. And you can have him right now if you want him. Simple as repentance and faith. That's it. I repent of my sins. I I admit that I have been living for me. I've been living with, with, with my own agenda, with my own God and my own life. And I want Jesus Christ to come in and take over. I want his forgiveness. I want him as my Lord and Savior. Do you want that? You can ask him right now if you want. Father, bless these folks. I pray that no one listening would be like this person that Jesus described. Hears these sayings of mine and does not do them. Lord, he builds his house on the sand and it will collapse when the the rains come and the problems come. Whether in this life or at the dawn of the next, it will collapse. Lord, I pray. I pray for those who've never placed their faith in Christ, that even right now in the quietness of their heart, they will admit to you their, their wretchedness, their undeserving. They don't, they don't deserve to be in your heaven. They deserve to be punished by you forever. Yet, Lord, the reality is that Christ came to die for every one of our sins, every one of them. And we can put our faith in thee and ask you to become our Lord and Savior, and you'll do that. And I pray for any who have not done that, that they'll do that even today. And I pray for your blessing, Lord, upon uh, those who have, that you'll help us to be discerning, help us be ready for your coming, whenever that is. We don't look for this coming, the coming with signs. We look for the one that is not expected, that neither gives a time frame nor a season as to what's going on. We look for that return. And I pray that we'll be ready. In Jesus' name. So are you ready if Jesus should return today? 
how about your family and friends? Sadly, many Christians approach the issue of prophecy with mere curiosity about what God says is going to happen, but you and I need to realize that God does not point us to the eternal pictures so that we can know more, but so that we can be more motivated to trust, serve, and follow him. If you claim to believe that Jesus could return at any moment, how does that reality affect your life? It is highly likely that Christ's own disciples did not understand much of what he said about the end times at this point. It's also very possible that they did not realize yet that a secret coming of Christ was the return that they were looking for in the future. This is the coming of Christ without signs that we commonly call the rapture today. Over the next two weeks, Pastor Jones plans to explain why he believes that in this sermon, Jesus speaks about two different returns, a coming without signs called the rapture and a coming preceded by signs called Christ's second advent. I pray if the Lord wills that you will be able to tune in for these in-depth examinations of Christ's own words concerning the end times and how he wants us to view them. I would also encourage you, if these broadcasts have been a blessing to you, to let others know about them and let us know as well. We would love to hear from you. As always, if you have a spiritual need and would like to interact with someone who can help you, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. If you care enough to reach out to us, we would be honored to try to encourage you in your relationship with God in any way we can. Let me invite you, if you don't currently attend a Bible-preaching church, to consider visiting us at Coffee's. Our Sunday school starts at 9 a.m. We have classes for all ages. Our morning worship service begins at approximately 10 a.m., and our somewhat less formal Sunday evening Bible study starts at 6.30 p.m. A nursery is provided for all of these services. On Wednesday evenings during the summer months, we also have a church family prayer meeting in which we gather and pray for many different requests, both physical and spiritual. You're welcome to join us for any of these events. We'd love to see you in person if God wills. For those of you who are shut in, we live stream many of our services. You can access them on our Facebook page by searching for Calkins Baptist Church on that platform. We also have a podcast that contains the recordings for this entire series. The best way for you to access that resource is to follow the radio bolt icon that we have pinned near the top of our home Facebook page. Also, several months back, we began uploading videos of our services to YouTube. So if you don't have Facebook and would like to view a message, you can search for Calkins Baptist Church on YouTube and find our page there. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. For me, for me. Sting life and light, he free.